Revelation chapter 15. So I'm going to read it for us, and then uh, we'll get started. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrews called Armageddon. A seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell uh, from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Wow. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. All right. Let me uh, 
let me pray for us and uh, you know, we'll, we'll dive into this thing. Uh, God, we thank you just for uh, this time together. And uh, we thank you for you know, your word and it's precious to us. And we always want to approach it as something that uh, we not only want to intellectually uh, understand, but something that is really good because it comes from your very mouth uh, by way of your Holy Spirit. So uh, speak to us today. Uh, show us our blind spots. Show us uh, areas in which we need greater conviction, but uh, ultimately show us yourself that we might dwell in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are still in the book of Revelation, and you may have noticed we've been spending a lot of time talking about God's judgment upon the world. And that's because John sees three cycles of sevens, and these three cycles are all communicating God's judgment. And so we had the seven seals that were being opened. Uh, then we had seven trumpets, and today this is the final cycle of seven in the seven bowls of God's wrath. And in the beginning of this vision, John sees seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for which uh, then the wrath of God is finished. And, you know, thank God for that, because uh, I, I am getting a little bit uh, weary uh, just preaching on uh, God's judgment. So I'm, I'm hoping to move on to the, the part about hope at the end of Revelation. But this vision is going to show us what it really looks like when God's wrath is poured out, when it's finished. Now, <clears throat> Uh, you know, as I was preparing the sermon, someone asked me to uh, look at their sermon and review their sermon, and the topic of their sermon was on hope, and, uh, you know, he wanted to, me to give a little bit of feedback, and so, you know, the only thing I said was, uh, when you talk about hope, you want to you wanna try to stir a longing for hope before jumping into uh, getting, in, before jumping into how we actually get that hope, and then uh, I got off the phone, and I looked at my sermon, and I said, you know, I should try to follow my own advice, and I thought, hmm, how do I, how do I preach this in a way where people will long for God uh, when the entire sermon is about his wrath and about his judgment? And, you know, it's, it's quite a challenge, and I don't know if I'll succeed, but at least that's my goal. And we, we've been talking about judgment for quite a while, and uh, as I said, you know, part of me kind of just wants to move on a little bit. But I will say that spending so much time talking about this has forced me to reflect uh, a little bit deeper you know, there's an exercise that people use, uh, that people used to do when um, they would read a verse or a passage and, you know, you would write down maybe five or ten things uh, on a piece of paper about anything about the passage that struck you. And then you would write down another ten things uh, and make another list of ten more things that in this passage that struck you. And of course, that second list of ten would be much harder because you already listed all the obvious things in that first list. But um, in that struggle for trying to come up with a list of another 10 things, uh, what people would find is like all the best spiritual golden nuggets of insight actually come from that second list because that's when you spend a lot of time thinking about something and that's how meditation is supposed to work. So I've been forced to really meditate and think about this topic of, of wrath and judgment and you know it's been a challenge to do but uh, it's been a process that I think has helped me in terms of forming my perspective around the spiritual and eternal realities. So as I've been thinking about the nature of God and his wrath and judgment because of these sermons, you know, I mentioned last week that uh, there's this one Christian author who said that the topics related to hell and judgment are the most difficult to talk about when trying to present a compelling case for Christianity in, uh, at least in the Western world. And that, you know, that stuck in my mind this week. And I thought, about why people in our culture don't really like to 
uh, think or talk about God's wrath or even accept this idea of a final judgment. And, you know, I read an essay about, you know, God's wrath and judgment, and it was basically saying uh, the struggle to maintain, you know, the, the love of God with the wrath of God is actually kind of a relatively new problem. Uh, before the 1750s, it doesn't seem like that many people had a hard time reconciling these two things. But after the 1750s, uh, the author was just saying, you start to see people start to wrestle and struggle with reconciling these two characteristics of God. Now, I don't know what the reason for that is, but I do know that that is one of the things that people have a hard time with when it comes to Christianity. Uh, when people envision uh, the God that they want, I think, of course, you envision a God who is love, who, uh, where love is maybe defined as, you know, just kind of being accepting of everything and of everybody and uh, being incredibly tolerant of, of all things and accepting you for who you are. And, you know, in the gospel, what we believe is God accepts us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the work of Jesus, his blood shed upon the cross is ultimately what makes us acceptable. But, you know, the modern message believes something like this, that God should accept us just for who we are, but that's not the Christian gospel. Uh, if anything, God accepts us in spite of who we are because of Jesus. But that, that is the air that we breathe in our culture. And I suspect that one of the reasons people are drawn to that is there is this desire, and I think it's a good desire, to live in a peaceful world, right? A world that is tolerant of all people. Because the truth of the matter is there is way too much conflict and there's uh, so much judging of one another. And it creates all kinds of uh, division and, you know, makes people feel excluded. And, uh, you know, those are all terrible things. But uh, the assumption in terms of how we get to the, that kind of world that we long for, a world of peace, um, the assumption underlying that is to say, oh, we should just get rid of, you know, all kinds of standards and all kinds of boundaries and all kinds of judgments. And that is what ultimately will lead to this peaceful world that we long for. But as I mentioned last week, and this, is, <clears throat> this has probably been the most helpful book to me in terms of thinking about this topic, there is this Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf, and he argues against that. So he says, the kind of people who see uh, the good in judgment are the ones who have experienced the greatest evil and injustice. And I was uh, listening to him give a talk and, uh, or a lecture, and he was talking about how uh, he struggled uh, as a Christian. He struggled with the command to love your enemies because, you know, as a Croat, he has seen Serbs do some pretty horrific things to his people. Um, and, you know, he came from former Yugoslavia. And he was legitimately wrestling with this question in view of all the atrocities done against my community, done against my people, how can I love my enemy? And the reason why he thinks that's an important question to wrestle with is because when you remove the command to love your enemy away from uh, Christianity, then he actually says it ceases to be Christian, right? So it's a central question for him. Now, how does one refrain from responding in violence when violence has been done unto them? And the answer here arrives at, or at least one aspect of the answer here arrives at, is uh, divine vengeance. And he says, uh, that one can only practice nonviolence or one can only love their enemies if there is some aspect where they believe in divine vengeance. And of course, it's the opposite of Western people, of what Western people tend to think. Western people tend to say, if you want peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, uh, the way that you get there is uh, 
is by muting divine judgment, but he, he's saying the opposite. He says we have to embrace it because if you know God is the one who is ultimately going to judge all evil upon uh, earth through his divine wrath, then at least you have the assurance that there will be perfect justice in the end. Even if it's delayed, there will eventually be perfect justice. And, uh, you know, isn't that why people retaliate for things? It's, it's a longing for justice. Something has been done to me that is wrong, and I need to make that right. I need to uh, exact punishment on the offender to make th sure things are fair, to make sure that there is justice. But, you know, what happens in that retaliation, uh, <clears throat> oftentimes, is you retaliate more than what maybe your enemy deserves, and then that enemy feels wrong by a retaliation. And so Wolf says, what ends up happening is you just have this constant cycle of violence where people are retaliating against each other. Uh, and underlying that is probably this pursuit of, I, I want justice, I want what's fair. But what if, <clears throat> uh, what if you knew someone was going to get exact, perfect justice for all the wrongs that they deserve, then maybe in your heart, you don't feel as much of a need to achieve justice for yourself, right? And it, it opens you up to be able to, um, you know, to respond with nonviolence or to turn the other cheek or like those kinds of difficult commands that uh, we find in the New Testament. We often think of anger as being uh, inherently wrong, but it, it's not always wrong to be angry. There are appropriate times to be angry. Uh, the problem is that our anger is polluted by our sin. And so sometimes we're not angry for the right reasons, or sometimes our anger is expressed improperly, or sometimes the amount of anger that we have is not in right proportion to the reason for our anger, right? So when we think about the, the wrath of God, the anger of God, it is hard for us not to think about it through our own experience of anger, through the uh, experience of, um, or through the, through our human lens. But you know, God's anger is a perfect and perfectly just anger because God in his being is perfect and just. He is righteous. And therefore, he will always execute the right amount of anger in accordance with his perfect justice. And, you know, of course, as humans, we, we might disagree with his standard of justice. But I guess the alternative would be to say, well, then humans should determine, uh, should be the ultimate arbiter of justice. And given our track record as humans, uh, is not something that I have a great deal of confidence in. And Wolf has lived this out firsthand. And so he, he actually critiques the Western notion that it's preferable to entrust judgment to human hands because it's less dangerous and more humane than God's judgment. Uh, he says, no, no, that's, that's pretty naive and foolish. And, you know, he'll, he'll back it up with some history. But according to um, Wolf, this uh, Croatian theologian, uh, he says divine judgment is a resource for actually living in a more peaceful world. Now, I mention all this because I, I do think that seems to be the perspective of the cycles of judgment in the book of Revelation. The way to get to the end, right? The way to get to this new Jerusalem, it actually comes by way of judgment. And the ones who are in need of justice in the book of Revelation, they are the ones who have been killed. They are the martyrs. They have been uh, killed on account of their faith. And so the final judgment would actually be a great encouragement for them, uh, for anybody who is has this deep longing for justice. Now, in this final cycle of wrath, it, it does seem to be the most intense one. So one example of the intensification is, uh, you know, in the seven trumpets, you had this like language that the judgments impacted a third, right? A third of the area. But in this cycle, uh, it seems to be complete destruction. So 
that also tells us that there is no more space for repentance. Whereas in the previous visions, there was always a, a space for repentance, but uh, the incomplete pouring out of judgment told us that, you know, God is still giving an opportunity to overcome the beast, to repent and to turn to him. And it's also telling the church, right, the, you have an important role in terms of being a faithful witness. But in this final cycle of judgment, it's, it's more intense, it's more complete, and it's, uh, it's a more of a final form of judgment signaling that the end of history is near. So the scene, uh, it begins with worship. And the scene of worship is reminiscent of the throne room that we saw back in chapters four to five. And uh, in that vision, there was a sea of glass in chapter four. And um, in this one, there's a sea of glass, only now it's mingled with fire. And uh, the sea is always a picture of cosmic evil, which is like consistent with the language from prophetic literature. And if you remember Revelation 13, where does the beast come out of? The beast comes out of the sea. So uh, the sea is equivalent to uh, cosmic evil. Now, with this sea of glass, there is also fire mingled in, and fire always represents God's judgment upon the wicked. So this sea of glass mingled with fire becomes the context where this beast is going to be judged by the Lamb. That's why the ones who have conquered the beast, they are singing the song of Moses. They are singing of God's mighty deeds, his justice and truth, his righteous acts, and his worthiness of worship. Uh, there are, of course, strong echoes of Exodus in this vision, and we'll see that later on in the plagues. But just as there was a song of victory in Exodus 15 after Israel crosses that Red Sea, there's a song of victory here in what you might call the, the final Exodus or the cosmic Exodus. We have been saying that God has been withholding his final judgment because this is a time where people are being given an opportunity to repent and to turn to him. But in that withholding of that final judgment, it also means justice is being withheld as well, right? Justice is being withheld for the blood of the martyrs. And as John sees a vision where the beast is going to be judged by the lamb, they sing songs praising the goodness of God's actions in the act of judgment against all evil. And the final judgment is an occasion for praise and worship. So it's not like this like shy um, kind of acceptance of, yeah, oh, you know, God judges the world, but they're praising and worship, worshiping God for it. Now, afterwards, John looks up and he sees the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven, and it is opened up. And out of this, this sanctuary comes these seven angels, right, with seven plagues. And each of these seven angels, they are being given these bowls full of the wrath of God. And these bowls of wrath start to get poured out upon the earth. Now, plagues, right? Why are plagues being poured out? And again, if it echoes the book of Exodus, the plagues remind us of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And so while some repent, others will be stiff-necked and hardened in their hearts towards God, and the bowls of wrath will be poured out upon them. Now, there's uh, one commentary that I read. You know, he had an interesting way of putting it. Um, you know, he's saying, we, we are always living in a gap right now. So believers, uh, we live in a gap between promise and reality. And what he means by that is, you know, we live by faith according to the promises of God. All of those promises have not yet been consummated. And so they are not necessarily our full present reality. Uh, and so we, we are kind of in a gap between like what has been promised and what will uh, be fulfilled. But there's also another gap, he says, between threat and reality. And there's always a threat of final judgment. And those without the covering of the blood of the lamb will stand naked and exposed to divine justice. And they will be asked to pay for the wages of their sins in order to satisfy perfect justice. 
and the gap is closing, right? So for the believer, the gap between promise and reality is closing as we get closer and closer to the end. But conversely, the gap between threat and reality is closing as well. And the time to repent will eventually run out. Now, I, I, I think, right, I, I think it's common for, uh, you know, people and, you know, for some of us and myself as well, you know, you, in the days where you used to walk right, in the streets of New York, um, <clears throat> you would sometimes like see, you know, either people in the, the subway stations or on the street, like these kind of street preachers, and they would like, they would tell people, you better repent because final judgment is coming. And I, you know, I walk by them, I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's not really uh, presenting a compelling case to, to uh, become a Christian, right? And you just kind of ignore them. And, you know, I, I would agree. I don't think the delivery is that great. But there, there is actually truth to the content, right? Uh, you know, I, I think the reason why people maybe scoff uh, at this notion of God's final judgment is, you know, it's, it's much easier to scoff at it than to really consider the truth of it, because it is a very heavy truth. But it's a truth that I think all people should really consider. And, you know, I was, watch I was watching some videos uh, on YouTube. And actually, Mike, Gene, and I we were watching this, this kind of evangelist. And he would go on the street and he would, uh, you know, talk to people about Christianity. And he would eventually come to share the gospel. And uh, it was interesting. You know, I saw a few videos by him. And not, not all the people end up becoming, like, accepting the gospel, but is is interesting. He always asks them about their sin, and then he always uh, talks about uh, or makes a connection between sin and punishment. And so even though they don't necessarily believe in Christianity, when he starts to talk about it, you can actually see it in their eyes that it is an existential question that really bothers them, right? Uh, one guy, the video that we were watching, he like, he kind of starts crying even because he knows deep down uh, he's a sinner. He knows deep down he is not worthy to be accepted by God. And for as much as people like to think that, you know, most people are good aside from the Hitlers of the world, I think deep down uh, there is a sense that we know that's not really true when we actually consider it. You know, even if you weren't a Christian and even if you didn't believe in the Bible and didn't uh, want to live according to the standards of the Bible, you can even ask yourself, well, what are your own standards of morality? And have you been able to keep them, right? So if your own standard of morality is like, you just got to be nice to all people. Have you been nice to all people, right? Likely you haven't. So even your own standards of morality, you have probably failed. And because we are, uh, I think, created in God's image, and because we all have this sense of justice, and we know that things, life uh, is supposed to be fair, I guess the question that you're left with is like, what do you do with that? If you don't meet these standards of morality, how do you respond to that, right? What, what do you do uh, in terms of your, your shortcomings? And because eventually, if you believe in justice, those violations of morality need consequences. Otherwise, we don't really believe in justice. And God's answer in the gospel is to repent, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, because Jesus himself volunteers to receive the judgment for our sins on our behalf. And without the final judgment, actually what happens is the gospel loses its power because what Jesus then experienced on the cross becomes less significant. Uh, so let's continue with this vision now. Uh, seven bowls of wrath poured out, and I'm going to go through this relatively quickly, but you have the first four bowls of wrath corresponding to elements of creation. 
First one's poured out on earth, second one is uh, poured out into the sea, third one is poured out into rivers and springs of water, the fourth one's poured out in the sky upon the sun. See, I'm going through them pretty quickly, right? <laughs> These initial four judgments, I think uh, we could say very simplistically, uh, it's showing us that God is sovereign over the spheres of creation. And uh, one commentator uh, says it pretty simply, he says, God will allow natural elements themselves to pass judgment on the human beings who have so grievously abused their position as God's image bearers within creation. So again, to put it simplistically, uh, all it's saying is there will be pain and suffering in the world. And that is what we are experiencing now. The fifth bowl of wrath is poured out uh, on the throne of the beast and his kingdom is plunged into darkness. But rather than respond to God's judgment with repentance, they double down and they curse God for their pain and their sores. And it says in uh, verse 11 of the passage, they did not repent of their deeds. And so now we have a picture of judgment upon the unrepentant. And even in judgment, uh, it's not as if they're saying, oh, I made a mistake. God, please show mercy. But even in their judgment, they continue to be unrepentant and they continue to curse God. And this, of course, sets up the climax in the sixth and the seventh bowls. And uh, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on these two bowls because they are uh, setting up the end. Now, the sixth bowl shows uh, the preparations for what has been called the Battle of Armageddon. The Euphrates River dries up, which allows for the movement of these great armies. And in verse 13, uh, you have the reappearance of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, which uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about as being uh, the counterfeit trinity. And it's, it's really a disgusting picture uh, because John sees out of their mouths three unclean spirits like frogs, right? Frogs are coming out of their mouths. Uh, you know what that reminds me of? Have you ever seen David Blaine? He has like this, this trick where he, he spits out frogs out of his mouth. It's like so disgusting. But uh, I'm not really sure why frogs are coming out of their mouths in this vision. You know, there is a uh, reference to frogs in like Exodus 8, where pharaohs, magicians are able to make frogs come out, out of the land. Maybe it has something to do with that. But uh, the point is, this counterfeit trinity is assembling for this final climactic battle, right? After that little comment, uh, the demonic spirits, they gather together at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And that word Armageddon, uh, of course, it has like popular connotations in our culture. Uh, in Hebrew, it literally means Mount of Megiddo. And Megiddo was a city between Mesopotamia and Egypt, and uh, supposedly like, important battles happened there for Israel. So uh, it was like a, you know, I guess a prophetic symbol for uh, this cosmic final battle that would take place. And uh, basically what it's just saying is there is going to be uh, a showdown. There will be a final battle between the servants of God and the enemies of God. And then you have this seventh and final bowl. And this seventh bowl is poured out and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And I think that corresponds to the beginning of the vision where John says with the seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished, right? Well, what happens to the beast? Well, we'll see that next week. It's going to tell us what happened to the beast. But the seven bowls there, it's giving us a framework for the end of history when Jesus returns. And after the, the seventh bowl is poured out, the wrath of God is finished, right? He has poured out his entire wrath. And verse 15 says, there is a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth, so great was that earthquake. And that's very reminiscent of what you read in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 
when it says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Uh, I preached on this passage last year. Uh, you know, probably don't remember, but you know, the shaking is uh, simultaneously painful and good. The painful part is the removal of things that can be shaken, right? The good part is it reveals something that ultimately cannot be shaken, which uh, in the book of Hebrews is the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ over all things. It is this kingdom that the author of Hebrews exhorts us to receive with gratitude and to respond by offering God worship with reverence and awe. Commentator says it like this, the pour out of bowl seven sweeps away time and history and replaces them by eternity. And that's what we look forward to the end, right? That's the end of history. All right, <clears throat> that was a lot of explaining. Can't avoid it in the book of Revelation. So what do we do with this information, right? Uh, I think there's a hint of it in verse 15. I don't know if you caught it as I was reading uh, the passage out loud, but there's this like weird part in verse 15 where there's a parenthetical interruption to the church that takes place at the end of uh, the sixth bowl. And Jesus says, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And it's, it's a parenthetical exhortation to the church, to believers, to persevere, right? Persevere in the midst of suffering and always be ready, right? Stay awake, be alert for the return of Christ. And it's the same exhortation that you oftentimes see in the Gospels. And I've always connected that uh, being sober-minded and awaiting the return of Christ uh, with prayer based on, you know, Luke chapter 17 and 18, right? So be alert and be in prayer, stay in prayer, lest you fall asleep and find yourself unprepared for the return of Jesus. Now, the questions that we ask in view of the end, I think it will tell us whether or not we are uh, using this information properly, right? Uh, you know, back in November, I think, uh, a few months ago, uh, Alex Trebek passed away. And uh, Alex Trebek was like the host of Jeopardy, which is a legendary game show in American culture. And it's a game where you have to guess the right question. So uh, in honor of Alex, Alex Trebek, let's play Jeopardy right now. <laughs> this is what the end of history looks like, right? The final judgment upon all evil. What's the right question? Well, when is this going to happen, God? No, wrong question, right? Is this pandemic the sign of the end? That's, that's not the right question either. You know what the right question is, according to the Bible? The right, right question is this. Are you ready, right? Are you ready? Jesus will return. That's, that's what's going to happen at the end of history. Are you ready? I want that question to percolate in your minds uh, all week. You know, in spite of everything that's going on in life, and uh, I think we're all going through probably this, you know, similar things, living in a pandemic, incredibly busy, incredibly anxious, um, incredibly distracted. Uh, still, this question should linger. Uh, when Jesus returns, will you be ready, right? Are you ready? Let's pray. Uh, God, we, um, you know, we hope 
these visions uh, to some degree uh, are startling. And, uh, you know, this kind of uh, literature, apocalyptic literature, and uh, you know, even the vision of the prophets, it, it does have a way to, uh, you know, startle us or awaken us to, to things maybe that we um, fail to really remember or think about. And so I, I do ask that as, um, as this vision of the, as the seven bowls of wrath are being poured out um, can be startling. Uh, I do pray, God, that there is a sense in which you imprint it uh, upon us um, because we as, as your people, we as a church, uh, we want to be ready for that. We want to stay alert and stay awake because Jesus will return one day and uh, judgment will come one day. And so uh, the time that we have here on earth, um, you know, we want to uh, not just use it well and uh, I guess use it well according to how you see um, our time and how it should be used. But we want to use it well in terms of being sober-minded and staying ready. Uh, we want to um, you know, just thinking about you know, uh, Luke 18 and, and the parable of the persistent widow and the question at the end, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Um, we want to be able to answer in the affirmative. And so, um, you know, renew us in us this uh, desire to be persistent in prayer like that widow. Uh, renew in us this um, sense of sober-mindedness, not to just be uh, stuck in the present. And, you know, it's so hard when we got so much going on in our lives. It's so easy to get distracted. But I guess uh, help us to cut through all that and to always maintain this uh, perspective of uh, eternity and uh and, and the return of Christ. And uh, may we be a people that is ready for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.